Well, I've been preaching here for over 20 years, and this is the very first Sunday where I've ever had to walk up from that side of the stage. And so if I seem discombobulated this morning, I'm blaming it on that, because someone has messed with my tradition, and you know how much I love tradition. Well, as you know, we're starting Summer Spectacular, and I want to try something this summer I have not tried before, and that is to have my summer's preaching go along with the Summer Spectacular theme. So I'm starting today a series on Elijah, and the adult teaching I will be doing during the evenings will be brand new sermons as we go along. I'm hoping that some of our guests who come during the week will hear this series on Elijah and will want to hear more, and will be back with us next weekend and throughout the summer. But to appreciate the great story we're going to be hearing these next few days, we have to know the back story. And so that's what I would like to do with you this morning. I begin with a story about the Lone Ranger and Tonto. And they're riding their horses across the desert when Tonto cocked his ear at the sound of what appeared to be a falcon's cry. But he quickly said, Kimosabi, Apache to the east. The Lone Ranger looked at his faithful friend and said, Then what do we do? We ride west. And so they took off west when suddenly Tonto stopped his horse. He took a whiff of the scent of the wind and said, Kimosabi, Apache to the west. What do we do? We ride north. And so they took off to the north when again Tonto stopped and with his eagle eye looked up over the horizon. Kimasabi Apache to north. What do we do? We ride south. And so they took off south but they'd only ridden a mile or two when Tonto got off his horse. He put his ear to the ground said Kimosabi Apache to south. What do we do? Tonto looked up and said, what mean we pale face? Okay, there's a moral there. And the moral is, at some point in your life, you are going to have to stand alone. Because everyone around you is on the other side. It takes little courage to stand with the majority. What God wants to know is, can you stand against the flow? And what we're going to see throughout the summer is that Elijah is one of the great stand-up acts in the Bible. He spent his life swimming upstream in a downstream world. But to appreciate the strength of his convictions, you must know something about the weakness of his times. So I'm going to take a little time to share with you the history of the times of Elijah. And I promise you, it will not be boring. Because whenever a prophet of God shows up, it is almost always because the people of God are going down. Now, Elijah lived during the time that we call the divided kingdom. You remember there were 12 tribes of Israel. Their first king was Saul. The next king was David. And the next was Solomon. But because of sin in the reign of Solomon, the kingdom divided into northern and southern kingdoms. Ten tribes comprised the northern 
kingdoms. They are typically in the Bible called Israel. The capital was Samaria. Sometimes they're called Samaria or Ephraim. The two lower tribes were typically called Judah, and the capital there was Jerusalem. Now, the southern kingdom will eventually, because of sin and rebellion, be taken captive by the Babylonians. But 140 years earlier, the northern kingdom is going to be taken captive and destroyed by the Assyrians. Why were they destroyed so much earlier? And the answer was because of terrible leadership. In about the 200 years of the existence of the northern kingdom, they had 19 kings. And every single king in the northern kingdom is summed up with these words. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see, when the kingdoms split... The very first king was named Jeroboam in the north. And here's what his fear. That if my people in the north go down to the temple in Jerusalem to the south, the three times for the annual pilgrimages, they will want to reunify. It's the same reason the North Koreans won't let their people go visit family in South Korea. It's the same reason the East Germans built a wall and wouldn't let them go and visit family in West Germany. Because they knew that getting together would cause the people to want to bring the nation back together. So Jeroboam decided, I will promote a new religion with new places of worship in the northern kingdom so the people won't go to the south. This is called throughout the Bible, the sin of Jeroboam. And every single king in the north followed this policy. It wasn't about religion. It was a political strategy promoted by the state. And that's why there was a sin of false worship in the northern kingdom. And nobody promoted this strategy as intentionally or as ruthlessly as King Ahab. Look with me in your Bible in chapter 16 of 1 Kings. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Now watch this. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And if you read about the guys before him, that's saying a lot. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger Then did all the kings of Israel before him. Have you ever known anyone named their son Ahab or their daughter Jezebel? See, this is the first time the marriage of a king is mentioned. And the reason is because Jezebel was the woman behind the man 
pushing him to even more evil. The Bible says in 1 Kings 21, 25, there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He may have had the reign, but she had the reins. She was the power behind the throne and she had an agenda to make Baal worship the state religion of Israel. Let's talk about Baal. Most scholars say probably the pronunciation was Baal, but most people call it Baal, unless you're from Texas and then you call it Baal. But at any rate, he was the God of the Canaanites responsible for fertility. He was the God that made sure your livestock and your wives got pregnant. But most of all, he was the God responsible for rain. Because in an agricultural society, if you don't get the rain, the crops don't grow and you get hungry. And so he was the God responsible for the production of a good harvest. That's why they built their temples and their altars on hills and high places to be up closer to the thunder because that's where Baal was. Now, Jezebel's agenda was to make Baal religion, the state religion, of the nation. And she did it in two ways. The first, the Bible says, she supported at her table 850 prophets of Baal, which meant she was taxing the people of her new country a lot to support them. Now that's bad enough. But she went a step further. She began the state supported execution of the prophets of God. It wasn't enough for her just to say, choose Baal or choose Yahweh. She had the prophets of God murdered. These are the times of our story. And the people of the northern kingdom quickly learned just to go along, to get along. Except for one man. He was no polished statesman or educated nobleman. But Elijah was one of the boldest stand-up acts in biblical history. Look at how he appears in the first verse of chapter 17. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, he just appears out of nowhere, which is interesting because the Jews love genealogy. They love to tell you who his daddy was and who his granddaddy was and what tribe he was from. And we don't know anything about Elijah. We don't know who his daddy was. We don't know what tribe he was from. We don't even know where Tishbe is, which just goes to show you, That God does not need famous people from famous places to accomplish his will. But here's what we do know. We know what his name means. El-Ijah. El was Hebrew for God. 
Yah was short for Yahweh. His name was, my God is Yahweh. Now this is important because back in those days, you named your kids to make a belief statement. Names stood for something. For example, when people would get captured back then, they would typically be given different names to represent a new value system. Do you remember the story of the three Hebrew boys in the fire? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those were not the names they were given as babies. Their Jewish names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But they were given new names, and every one of those names represented a tribute to a Babylonian god. So, imagine now, here's Ahab. He is building temples to Baal. He is feeding prophets of Baal. He is allowing his wife to kill prophets of God. And he's on his throne one day, and the servant says, Sire, there's someone outside that wants to talk to you. Who is it? His name is, my God is Yahweh. Do you realize his very name spoke his conviction and invited his execution? And Elijah was not appearing before Ahab to negotiate. He came to publicly do his stand-up act. And in that one little sentence, he established what are going to be the two big themes of his entire ministry that we'll see over and over this summer. Theme number one, God is alive and well. See, his message was a direct insult to Ahab's adopted religion. Look again at what he said. As surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Not Baal. Israel has already got a God. Yahweh. And as surely as the God of Israel whom I serve lives. Now there's power in that word. Because now remember... Baal is the god of rain. Now, everyone knows in that part of the world, there is a rainy season and then there is a long, dry season. Now, if your god is in charge of rain, how do you explain a long period of the year when there's no rain? Here's what they said. Baal died. That's right. Every year, Baal died. And then he would come back to life and the rain would come again. So, Elijah shows up and says, Israel has a God. His name is Yahweh and he never dies. The God of Israel lives. See, the battle here is not political. It's theological. It's not a battle between a prophet and a king. It's a battle between Lord God and a new God. And Yahweh is out to prove that Baal is a fake. Because I'll tell you something about God. God hates fakers. He hates fake followers and he hates fake gods. And his desire for the allegiance of his people is too big to allow little gods to go unfulfilled. 
exposed. Remember what he told the people when they came out of Egypt? Next is 34. You must worship no other gods, but only Yahweh. For he's a God who is passionate about his relationship with you. So Elijah was not called to speak his mind. He was called to speak God's mind. So he shows up before Ahab and basically he says, oh, you say Baal is God. Well, let's just see how well Baal can grow crops if there is no rain. Because I've come to give you a weather report for the next three years. Yahweh, the God who lives, will cease to send rain because you have ceased to acknowledge His rain. Now, did God give Elijah a fresh new word? Or was Elijah just claiming the truth of a previous word? You see, Moses told the people right before they entered the land in Deuteronomy 11, Be careful, or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. And then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he'll shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you'll soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. Elijah knew what was going to happen because God already said, So I think Elijah said, well, I'm just going to pray for God to do what he said. The Bible says in James chapter 5, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And Elijah was convinced one man praying to a living God was greater than 850 men praying to a dead one. So he stood before Ahab and said, you want a battle of the gods? Yahweh says, bring it on. Because he's alive and well. And one more thing about God. He alone is to be feared. You see, almost all of Israel had bowed down to Ahab's campaign of intimidation. Because this is Satan's favorite Strategy. Satan's largest industry is the production of bogus fears. But fear leaves the room when God enters the picture. I wish the New International Version had translated the phrase more accurately. It reads, the God whom I serve in English. But the Hebrew literally says, the God Before whom I stand. So Ahab said, or or Ahab heard Elijah say, I can stand up to you because I stand before a greater king. Ahab wasn't used to this. Ahab and Jezebel ruled through intimidation. He wasn't used to somebody standing up to him, not afraid. You see, it's no coincidence, the single command in the Bible, more than any other, is this one. Do not be afraid. Because Satan's biggest industry is cranking out bogus fear. 
And do you know what fear in the Bible is talked about more than any other one? The fear of man. The chief way Satan gets us to cop out and wimp out is to put pressure on us to just go with the flow. It's not just teenagers that deal with peer pressure. In almost every arena of our lives, standing up for God means standing against the flow of our culture. And the Bible says in Proverbs 29, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. It's bondage. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. You've been there, haven't you? At some point in your life, you were somewhere in some situation where you could stand up and speak for God or wimp out and go with the flow. Fear of man keeps us from saying what somebody needs to stand up and say. From doing what somebody needs to stand up and do. From being who somebody needs to stand up and be. But the Bible says in Psalm 56, when I'm afraid, I'll trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Do you know what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, I'll tell you how you conquer fear of man. Get a better fear. The cure for bogus fear is get yourself a worthy fear. The fear of God is the beginning of a wise life. And the knowledge that Elijah stood before God gave him the courage to stand up to anyone and anything. Because he knew what he said put a price on his head. That's the thing about preaching. It can be dangerous. John the Baptist, where are you going? Preach. Who to? Herod. What's the title of your sermon? Can't have your brother's wife. Have you lost your mind? Because if you preach that sermon, you're going to lose your head. Stephen, where are you going? Preach. Where? Temple. What's the title of your sermon? God doesn't need the temple anymore. Gentiles can go to heaven. Are you stoned? Because if you preach that sermon, you will be. Elijah, where are you going? Preach. To who? Ahab. What's the title of your sermon? My God's alive and yours is dead. But he knew. He just had one king to please. Remember that. Your call is not to live for the applause of the crowd. You've got one voice to please.
William Carey, famous missionary to India, had a son named Felix that promised he would be a missionary. But then he got a call from the throne of England to be an ambassador to Burma. Now, how do you turn that down? How do you turn down your king? Who wouldn't be proud of a son as an ambassador? But William Carey wasn't. He wrote his friends. He said, pray for Felix. He has degenerated into a servant of the British government when he should be serving the king of kings. It takes little courage to stand with the majority. What God wants to know is who can stand against the flow. I think that's one reason God sends trouble. Because trouble asks, who is God? Trouble makes us decide what our religion really is. It wasn't hard at first. Everyone heard about what Elijah did. But they had plenty of water in their cisterns and in their barrels and their buckets. So the first few weeks of rainy season when there were no clouds in the sky, everyone was fine. But after a while, the cisterns get empty. The brooks dry up. And the Israelites had to question the wisdom of bowing down to their new God. He wasn't showing up. You see, God is actively involved in exposing fakes and false securities. I wonder if that might explain the dry season you might be going through right now. God is trying to expose your idol. Just last night I had a wonderful conversation with the man finally getting help for his addiction to alcohol. And God has sent him through a terribly, terribly dry season to finally expose the falseness of his God. See, trials force us to stand up or shut up. And so later when Elijah ascends to heaven, Elisha will say the question that is a great question, where's the God of Elijah? But the Bible also asks this question, where are the Elijahs of God? Elijah was a man just like us. Don't get distracted by the fire falling from heaven or the getting fed by ravens. What the Bible is saying is this man with conviction and constant prayer stood up against the flow for God. And you can too. And you just may discover it's liberating to break free from the tyranny of the majority. And you may also discover that your courage inspires others to stand with you. And so one more P 
picture. I want to show you this young lady. Her name is Arlene Lemus. It's the 1988 Summer Olympics. She was a senior at DePaul University. She wasn't expected to do that well. She stunned everyone. And in that moment, you see that she has just found out she has won the gold medal. And what comes next must be the greatest moment in the life of any athlete. As you stand on a podium, they put that medal around your neck. The flag of your country goes up and the entire Coliseum listens to your anthem. And so there she is on the podium wearing the medal. The flag is going up and the tape machine broke. No music. So do you know what she did? She started to sing. At first just one voice. But her parents were there and they started to sing. And some GIs were there and they started to sing. And some American tourists were there and they started to sing. And Arlene started to lead. She even did her hand like this. She bound to have been from the Church of Christ because she knew how to do that. And before long, the whole Colosseum is singing her song with her. How does God start revivals? One person at a time. With the courage to sing a song that no one else has started. And so the great evangelist Gypsy Smith was asked one time what we could do to start a revival in our nation. He said, do you have a closet at home? Yes. Do you have some chalk? Yes. Go back to your house, get in your closet, get on your knees. Take the chalk and draw a circle around yourself. And then pray for God to send revival on everybody inside that circle. And don't get up until God has answered the prayer. Would you bow your heads, please? Would you have the courage to be real honest for a second? Where do you struggle most with fear? In what arena of your life do you find yourself intimidated the most? Talk to God about it for a second. And ask Him for courage. And so, God, we're going to pray again the dangerous, dangerous prayer we prayed a moment ago. Revive us again. Fill each heart with your love. And just like Elijah, we ask for fire to come down. For each soul to be rekindled. Let it come down, God. Let the fire come down. But let it come down first on me, on us. Because if we were on fire for God, it would make Jesus look good. And so for his honor and glory, we ask it. Amen. We serve a great God. Who deserves all we have. I pray he will expose any 
fake God in your life, no matter how much it hurts. He loves you too much to do any different. We're going to sing a song. And during this song, if you would like to come, confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. To publicly, go public, stand up for Him in the act of baptism. You come right now and do that. We're going to tell the world and each other that there's only one God. And His name is Yahweh. Let's stand, please.